open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9, and I know God has got a great word for us tonight. Let's go ahead and, and before we pray, uh, let, me, let me just say this, that there was an exhortation that I gave this morning. If you weren't present with us, I would encourage you to uh, watch the video when it gets uploaded. Um, and the message was on prayer, and I know you've probably heard a thousand messages on prayer, but, you know, this one was kind of customized for our church. And there was an exhortation that I gave today in the service that um, at 514, either a.m. or p.m., we would pray Ephesians chapter 514. Uh, so, you can check this out later, chapter 5, verse 14 in the book of Ephesians, Paul is, Paul is exhorting uh, the church to be awake. But in addition to that, he definitely has uh, an exhortation for those who don't know Christ to be awakened to their spiritual senses and to trust in him. Uh, so at 514, you guys can pick morning or night. I had a couple leave today, and they're like, the husband said, hey, pastor, she's got AM, I've got PM. And uh, what we're going to do is we're just going to commit this year to praying for an awakening. Like we have talked about this, you know, add ad nauseum, ad infinitum, um, over and over again. But, you know, when the people of God really do pray and seek the face of God, great things happen. And collectively, I'm not saying that it needs to be a dissertation to God, all right? You don't have to create a thesis paper over this unless you want to. It might be a good Bible study for you. Uh, but it can be something as simple as, you know, 60 seconds of prayer, you know, I mean, or 30 seconds of prayer, but really heartfelt and genuine and sincere before God and I think that not only in that as we pray will we get the heart of God for an awakening in our culture, but we will see him do that work as well. Does that sound good? Can you guys do that? All right. Um, you, uh, you're going to get tested on this. And uh, this is the last Sunday night service that we're going to be having in the sense of a weekly service. We are still going to do things on Sunday night from time to time. We'll have special services. We'll have worship services. Um, I'll probably do prophecy updates on Sunday night. Uh, so it's not like, hey, this is, we're not saying this is the last Sunday night forever because it's not. Uh, so, you know, obviously, yeah. Great. Keep your ears open for that. Uh, and then also, if you guys, we would love to see you on Thursday night. This Thursday night is our first Thursday night service. So um, please make sure, if you're plugged into a life group, that absolutely is priority. Don't forsake your life group for uh, the Thursday night gathering here. But you for sure can add it. And then if you're not plugged into a life group, this, is a, this will be a great opportunity for us to continue in the book of Revelation and uh, to be blessed. And then the last thing I want to say before we get into Revelation chapter 9, one of the re you guys still with me? One of the reasons that we made this shift, that we made, made this change, is there are a lot of people who can't make it to a gathering of God's people on Sunday. And all of our services are on Sunday, all of our gatherings, corporate gatherings. And so um, if you know somebody, maybe they're unchurched, you know, maybe they don't know the Lord, for sure invite them. Um, in addition to that, if they do know the Lord but they can't make it on Sunday, it's a great opportunity to invite them on Thursday. So with all of that, Revelation chapter 9. We're going to start tonight where we left off last week, and that would be in verse 13. Let's pray. Father, thank you. God, thank you so much for just your presence throughout this day, your faithfulness. God, you have been so good to us, and you've spoken so clearly, and we're grateful, God, because we need it. 
Uh, we need it in the whirlwind. God, we need it in the tornado, the hurricane sometimes that we feel like we're in. We need your word to pierce through all of that. God, we need to see you and what your purpose is for us, and we, we need to be faithful. And so we pray tonight, just as you've just been so present with us in the time of worship, that you would speak to us through these words. Uh, this book is prefaced with a promise that if we read it and listen and keep these things that are spoken in our hearts, that there will be a blessing for us. And we're believing that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. I was teaching today, and um, I, I almost said a word, uh, but I chose not to say this particular word. I put a break on it because I've heard this word over and over so much in the last two years, I'm, I'm done with it. I am done with it. And so I literally stopped, and I'm like, I'm not saying that word. And uh, I told everybody at the second service, I'm like, you know, you probably want to know what it is, but you can't know what it is. So I saved it for tonight for the evening service. And, and the word, that because I just got to get it out, right? I mean, this is my catharsis here. Uh, the word is unprecedented. I am sick and tired of that word. I just got to tell you, every time someone uses it, I'm like, ah, you know, find a different word. Find a different word. Um, and I want to say this in a way that makes sense tonight. Uh, and I hope it does to you, it does to me, but that doesn't mean it's going to make sense. Um, I think that sometimes we use that word in a way uh, where it's, it's almost like we're saying we're going through things that the world has never, ever gone through before. And I will say, obviously, there are elements of what we're going through that, that have not been experienced. I mean, if you, if you tie it to things like advancement in technology and and things like that, right? I mean, there are things that we experience that no other generation has experienced uh, because there are advances that we, have, that we have in our culture, in our lives that no other generation had. But fundamentally, the basic things are the same. This is not the, let me, let me just say for the pandemic, this is not the first time that there has been a pandemic. I mean, there have been pandemics before. And sometimes, you know, we can phrase things in such a way where it's almost as if we put ourselves in a position that it's as if no one's ever been in this spot before. And look, I think, I think the problem with that can be, I'm not saying that it always is, but it can be this, that in, in all of that, we forget that our God is the God of every generation. Psalm 91, you have been a shelter, Lord, to the generations, that's what, and you know, that whole psalm is prefaced with a prayer by Moses, the man of God. I love the way the Bible refers to Moses as the man of God. And he makes this statement that I think is so important. God has been the shelter. God has been the refuge. God has been the safe place for every single generation. And sometimes, you know, when we put ourselves in this place where it's like, well, this is unique and it's never happened before, we can disassociate. We can disassociate the faithfulness of God all the way back to every other generation. I was pondering that 
last week and I was thinking, man, God, you've been faithful. You were faithful during World War II. You were faithful during the Great Depression. You were faithful during World War I. You know, really thinking about some of these events that have happened on a national scale, but also a global scale, and just reminding myself that for every generation, God has not failed. God, are you with me tonight? Hey, it may feel like it's unprecedented to us, but it's not unprecedented to God. God has it, and I want to remind you of that tonight. It's not even connected to the message. No, I mean it is, kind of. But, but what is unprecedented, what will be unprecedented, is the Great Tribulation. I mean, there are things that we're going to see in this chapter tonight um, that, that are so absolutely unique that Jesus himself says of this time frame or time period, that these are things that the world has never experienced before. The, the way he says it, I think, word for word, is such tribulation such as the world has never seen. And so, you know, we're going to read some things tonight, and you're going to recognize and realize, man, this is this time, that particular time that's coming is a time that's going to see the wrath of God in a way that the world has never seen before. And so Revelation chapter 9, verse 13 says this, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. I want to remind us uh, today, a couple things, uh, is this. We're talking about the trumpet judgments, right? I've said this before, I don't want to like... I don't want to beleaguer this. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. Six seal judgments, the seventh seal opens the seven trumpet judgments. Now we're in the, the second woe of the three woes of the trumpet judgments, which is the sixth trumpet judgment. You can figure that later for yourself. But the sixth angel sounds here. And then, you know, it's unique, it's a little different. This is what John experiences. He, he hears a voice that's coming from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So there is, a, there is an altar. There is an altar in heaven. Remember the tabernacle that Moses built was built after the pattern of the tabernacle or the temple in heaven. And, of course, we know that not only was there an altar in the tabernacle or the temple on earth, there is also one in heaven. We've read that already in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, we saw a really interesting scene where the tribulation saints were kept in a place of protection underneath the altar of God. And they were asking God, how long until you avenge our blood? But then all the way back into the Old Testament, you remember Isaiah was taken up into heaven and he had this amazing vision that he saw. Uh, the seraphim were flying around the throne of God and they were declaring the holiness of God. And in all of that, this, this amazing experience of the presence of God, there was, a, there was a realization, a recognition in Isaiah's life that he was a sinful man. He said these words, woe is me for I'm undone. I mean, this is one of the things that happens when you really are dwelling in the presence of God. You see who God is, you see him for who he is, and you see yourself for who you are. And in that, in that contrast, in the light of his beauty and his glory and his holiness, 
there is a, an understandable conviction of sin, is there not? Aren't there times in your life where you've been fellowshipping with God and there's just been this beautiful revelation of the presence of God and, and you know, sometimes we articulate it like this, God, who am I? Are you guys with me tonight? God, who am I? Like, who am I to even have the opportunity to have access into your presence? And this is precisely what, what happens in the heart of, Oz, heart of Isaiah. He says, I am undone. God, in your presence, I am taken apart. I am taken apart. I mean, he was a prophet. He was a man of God. He declared the word of God to the people of God. And, you know, he'd not reached this place where he thought that he really did have it all together. And, you know, when you and I, if we, God help us, ever reach that spot, God will be faith, faithful to take us apart piece by piece. He'll be faithful to bring us to a place where we see him for who he is. So we make the same declaration that Isaiah did, woe is me for I am undone. And when he utters that, the Bible says one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah, had in his hand a live coal which he had taken uh, with the tongs from the altar, from the altar. He touched the lips of Isaiah and and prepared him, purged him, and prepared him so that he could be the messenger of God. Because God had said, who will go for us? And Isaiah's response was, here am I, send me. Now, you know, this isn't the topic for tonight, but let me just say to you, we have something more than a coal from the altar of God. We have the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, we are purged. We've been cleansed. We've been purified. We want to serve God, but we understand as we look at ourselves that we fall so short of his mark of perfection and his holiness and righteousness. And so what, what does prepare us, what does enable us to be able to serve God in a way that pleases him, in a way that we can experience his power, it is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, his blood that was shed for us. And so John sees again this altar this particular time, there is a voice that comes from the altar. Now, the voice is not identified in the sense of we don't know who the voice is. Um, this voice is going to give command. It's going to give direction. And so, you know, many people would say this is a divine voice, and I'm all right with that. The Bible says in verse 14, saying, the voice saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released, this is just so heavy, were released to kill a third of mankind. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, reiterate this too often, but I've mentioned to you uh, the fallen angels, a third of the angels. Revelation chapter 12 says us that, 12 says to us that Lucifer or Satan uh, drew with him in his rebellion a third of the holy angels. They're now fallen angels. They're demons. We know that these are uh, ungodly angels. They're, they're demons because they're bound, because they're held. Uh, I've, I've mentioned to you that there are some that are held in the bottomless pit. They're reserved in chains until the day of judgment. Last week we saw that there's going to be a there is going to be someone, probably Satan, who has a key to the bottomless pit, and as he opens it up, there will be innumerable demonic forces, demonic beings that will come out of that bottomless pit. They'll be like locusts. We talked about, you know, what havoc they're going to wreck on humanity. 
Um, and now we're introduced to, to four other angels. We've not seen these angels before. They're actually bound, but they're bound in a place, the, the river Euphrates. They're bound for a time. So, in fact, the scripture says in verse 15 that uh, they had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year. So there's a place that they have been held. There's a time that they have been held for. There's a, there's a purpose that even God has for these fallen angels. And what's going to happen is on their release, they are going to kill a third of mankind. Now, remember, uh, in the seal judgments, a quarter of humanity has already, has already been destroyed and so, you know, we have a third of humanity now being destroyed, which, which, which puts, like if you don't consider all of the other things, that means that 50% of the world's population has been wiped out by the time you get to the sixth trumpet judgment. Um, and, you know, in modern terms, that would be four billion people. Like, I, you can't even imagine how catastrophic that will be, but we're talking about four billion people. Um, it is interesting in all of this just to be reminded that God is the one who is in control, right? These four angels definitely are influential, uh, they're powerful, and they are exceedingly wicked. Paul, when he's encouraging us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but principalities and powers, this is how he saw the arrangement of demonic powers. He says there are principalities, uh, there are powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age. There are spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so it would seem that, that there is a, a hierarchy, there's an order in the adversary's army. And, you know, it would seem also that these particular angels are so influential and powerful and exceedingly wicked that most likely they sit kind of at the top of that power structure that the adversary has. Now, I, I don't wanna freak you out tonight. I don't want you to leave thinking, oh my gosh, I've got so much to be afraid of because the devil's so strong. I don't wanna leave you with that impression because the devil is no match for God, Amen. right? And these are scriptures that we say 100,000 times. I'll just say them again. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? You and I were sons and daughters of disobedience. We were under the prince of the power of the air, but in Christ, we have been seated in heavenly places. We've been seated in heavenly places, and now God himself dwells within our very life. But I think it is important for us just to be reminded that even with the demonic influence that's going to be happening during the Great Tribulation, there is not a detail, this is so important, there is not a detail that, that God isn't. That was a double negative. I don't care. There is not a detail that God isn't sovereignly ruling over. Right? Can you say yes to that? Yeah. Right? And if God is sovereignly ruling over all those details, don't you think he's sovereignly ruling over all the details in your life? Hey, don't you think that he's sovereignly ruling over all the details that we're, we're dealing with today? Right? You wake up, and I don't, know how many, uh, I don't know how many news outlets you surf. Zero. Okay, hey, let's do this tonight. Uh, zero, raise your hand. I love you guys so much. Okay, one to five, raise your hand. All right. Five to ten, raise your hand. All right, God bless you. We're praying for you. 
we're praying, we're praying. And, and you know, it's like, I mean, the truth is this, they all say the same thing, right? I mean, typically there are two sides and, and both sides are fundamentally saying the same thing. So after you, start, after you surf, surf a few, there's no new news. There's no new news, but you know, sometimes when, we, when we're looking at the news, it's like, man, we're so flabbergasted. We're so taken aback. We're so in shock that sometimes, you know, we can overlay that. We can project that onto God, or we can be so overwhelmed with it ourselves that we stop even considering that while we may be taken aback, while we may be shocked, God is not shocked. I'm not saying that in God not being shocked that somehow he's pleased because he's not pleased, but God knows exactly what is happening in the world today. And that is just a simple reminder that you and I can absolutely trust in him. Can you say amen to that? All right, so how does this manifest? Well, verse 16 says this. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. So listen, we have shifted from the four angels that had been prepared for this moment bound at the river Euphrates. I do believe, um, you know, this is historic. This will be historically and geographically literal. Now we've shifted into, like, out of nowhere comes this 200 million person army um, riding on horses. And, you know, some people take this number to be figurative. Um, My rule of thumb for Revelation is to take everything literal unless there is a reason for us not to. So if the book of Revelation is phrasing things in a way where it's clear we're talking about a a metaphor or a simile, and John will use things like as if or like, like, you know, like, like, like. These These are terms that we use when we're indicating, you know, that something is figurative or metaphorical or, like I said, a simile. If we don't see that, then I do think that we need to take what he's saying literally Um, But it would appear from this that these four demonic fallen angels um, somehow are orchestrating either an army from one particular country or um, a collective army from a variety of different countries. Now you might say, wow, 200 million, a, a 200 million person standing army, that's a lot, but Back in 1965, I think it was, it was the first time that China actually said that they had reached a standing army of 200 million men. So this is not, this is for sure not something that is, um, you know, outside of the realm of possible. And not only that, and I don't want to confuse you today with the Battle of Gog and Magog with this particular moment, but it's possible that this trumpet judgment is tied to Revelation chapter 16, And later on, I would encourage you to check out Revelation chapter 16. There is a battle that's going to happen. And one of the things that God allows to happen is the river Euphrates itself dries up. And that prepares the way from the kings of the east to come ultimately to the great battle in the Valley of Jezreel or the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, And and so, listen, maybe it's just going to be Maybe it's just going to be 200 million men from, from China. Maybe it's going to be a coalition. This is where I don't want to conflate two things that may not be connected, but maybe it'll be a coalition between Russia, Iran, and 
uh, China. That absolutely is a possibility. And depending on how the forces from Russia would come down, they would, at the end of the day, they would still all have to cross over the Euphrates River. So um, it's possible that that's what's, what's happening here. Um, however that works, what we do know is that they will be absolutely destructive. They will lay waste to everything in their path. And this, this sixth judgment really is a third of mankind being killed. Uh, but he gives more description, verse 17, And thus I saw the horses in the vision, those who sat on them, had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now let me tell you what this absolutely means. I have no idea. All right? I have no idea. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, and I'd mentioned this either last week or the week before, John is just describing, you know, military, uh, military vehicles in the only terminology he knows how to use, right? I mean, he's limited, he's constricted to first century vocabulary and experience, and so it's possible, you know, we're not talking about 200 million horses here. We're talking about, you know, these soldiers riding in tanks and et cetera. And of course, that is a possibility. We, we just don't necessarily know. Um, we know that there will be three plagues that come with this 200 million man army, which is how the multitude of people are killed. Verse 18 by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their mouth is it, for their power, excuse me, is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads and with them they do harm. So man, they are destructive from the front side and they are destructive from the back side as well. Um, now listen, you know, when you think about something like this, that is just as destructive as you can imagine, you would imagine, I think it would be right to say that people would be in a condition where they would be repenting before God. You know, you read these expressions of God's wrath, and make no mistake, you know, people are not going to be submitting insurance claims during the Great Tribulation. You know, this is not all going to fall under a natural disaster. People are going to know that this is the wrath of God and it's the wrath of the Lamb, so, um, when, you know, when we think about the response of people, it's right to assume, it's right to assume that with all of this, that people would be broken, they would be contrite, they would be seeking after God, uh, they would be pursuing relief and repentance, and I think one of the things that's the most extraordinary thing out of the book of Revelation is how hard hearted humanity is how hard-hearted humanity is you know there are times where it's like and we got to be careful with this because we were there ourselves but there are times where it's like man you're looking at someone's life and they're going through it you know what i'm saying they're going through it and it's so difficult and so hard and you've been praying for them praying for them just to put their trust and faith in jesus christ and you look at that life and you think man what is it going to take what is it going to take to awaken that soul? Listen, it's even harder when it's your kids. It's even harder when that 
that person that you've been praying for and and you know in your heart they're going to have to hit rock bottom but the last thing that you want is for them to have to travel down a road that you know is filled with so much difficulty and as a parent you grieve over that and it's like that broken hearted cry to God God what is it going to take what is it going to take to awaken this heart what is it going to take to awaken this soul how bad does it have to get and I will tell you that it's a double-edged sword because, you know, on the one hand, it is hard to see the ones that we love go through such difficulty. But, but on the other hand, God has a jealous love. God loves people so much that he will allow, he will allow them to experience the fruit of their decisions ultimately to bring them to a place where they do hit that moment where the only, the only way for them to look is up. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, they can't look down anymore because there's no, there's, they can't go down any further. And they can't look around anymore because there's no one who can provide the help to save them out of the situation that they're in. The only way that they can look is up. And God, in his love for us, will allow us to come to that place where we have. Where we have. Now, now listen, uh, we have nowhere else to turn but up. Still, there's a decision that needs to be made. You can still harden your heart in that moment and absolutely resist and reject God. But you know, in all of that, you think, well, I'll win the battle here. You're not winning the battle. You know, in, in, you, you think in some way that you're getting one up on God and you're not getting one up on God. You are keeping your heart uh, from really receiving his love and letting him do what he is desired to do. I want to encourage you tonight, you know, maybe you've rolled into church and you're that person that people have been praying for. Now I'm talking to you directly and this is super uncomfortable for you. But you're that person that people have been praying for and you know you've just hardened your heart and you're doing it your own way and, and, and you know, maybe in a way you've kind of held it over other people's heads, this, this reluctance to make a decision to follow God. And I would just say to you, that decision is not about making them happy. That decision is about receiving the love of God and pleasing your heavenly Father. It's about pleasing Him. And that place of real contentment, purpose, and satisfaction is only found in a real relationship with Him that you will only get to through repentance. Remember the word repent, repent, remember, that's a bad word. Repimp is a bad word. <laughs> I just made up a new word and there's nothing good that can come from the word repimp. Do not make a shirt out of it. Do not make a bumper sticker out of it. I mean, I've got some mess ups, but that one's, that one's classic. We'll get mileage out of that. <laughs> repent. You know, the word repent, metanoia, it means to, to change one's mind, right? So we're not just talking about a change in direction. We're talking about a change in attitude. When it comes to sin, what we're saying is this, God, I never saw it this way. I never saw it your way. But now I'm changing my mind and I'm choosing to see sin the way you see it. I'm acknowledging that it is an offense against you. And because I'm changing my mind about the way I see sin, I'm now changing the course of my life. You know, instead of walking in sin or walking towards sin, God, I'm making a U-turn because I realize fundamentally that all sin is moving in a direction that is opposite of you. When I sin, 
I don't stay in some static place. I'm actually walking away from you. And so, God, I'm repenting of that. I'm repenting of my attitude. I'm repenting of the course of my life. And I'm making a turn, and I'm pursuing you, and I'm choosing to align my thinking with what is conveyed in your word. Now, I say all of that to say that does not happen. That does not happen. As hard as this is, check out verse 20. It'll blow your mind. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold. Man, how, how explicit is that? Silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality uh, or their thefts. And so... You know, I don't, wanna, I don't want to just put thoughts in John's heart or mind, but I think John himself is astounded here. John says, after, you know, after these people watch, at least two billion people wiped out from this moment, this expression of the wrath of God, they still did not align themselves to the heart of God. They didn't change their attitude and their course of action you know, they, they did not, they, they continued to do with their physical body those things that were displeasing to God. You know, there, there was no evident change. They continued to worship demons. Hey, you know, some of the reason why the, the heart of humanity is so hardened during this time is that it is all out worship of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. You know, you think things are bad today. During the Great Tribulation, the false trinity is literally going to be worshipped publicly. And so it really is no surprise. It is no surprise that the heart of mankind is so hardened. Um, but I, I appreciate how explicit it is, right? They're worshipping. They're setting as the highest value in their life demons. And, and, and maybe in their mind, not just demons, but but physical objects, gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. And then, you know, John pulls from the Old Testament. And when he pulls from the Old Testament, you know, the, the logic, the reason that he's using is so lucid, it's so clear, right? Because the Old Testament prophets would, would consistently say to the people of God, like the people of God who are worshiping false idols made of these things, why are you worshiping something that can't see, can't hear, or can't walk? Like, how is it that you're worshiping something that, that not only can't hear, see, or walk, but because these things can't do that, they have no power to rescue you. They have no power to save you. Isaiah would say, man, you worship that thing in one moment, and this, the next moment you put it on the fire to warm yourself by it. And you think that that is going to save you? The psalmist said in Psalm 115, verse 5, speaking about just the reality. He boils down the foolishness of idolatry. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. They have noses but cannot smell. They have their hands but they cannot feel. Their feet but they cannot walk. They cannot utter a sound in their throats. And then the psalmist goes on to say that those who worship them are just like them. Those who worship them are just like them. You know, um, we don't necessarily have idols like they did 2,000 years ago. 
that we worship. You don't always walk into someone's house and see a shrine with a little idol that they're worshiping. But, and I know, I know you know this, but there are all sorts of idols in the lives of Americans today. It may not be in the shape of some religious figure that's worshiped in the pantheon of religions, but, but it for sure can be, it can be an idol that's worshiped in our consumeristic culture. You know, maybe we are worshiping our money. That was the God of mammon during the time of Jesus. Maybe we're worshiping the intellect. That was the God of Baal during the time of Jesus. Maybe we're worshiping Molech. That was the God of sexual immorality during the time of Jesus. These gods always stood for something. And that worship of false gods is still prevalent today. You know, and, and so let me just boil this down to something that's so obvious, right? Uh, you, your car is never going to save you. Your financial portfolio is never going to save you. Your house cannot save you. All these physical and tangible things that somehow we cling to and hold on to and think, well, if I can just have these, I'll be okay. The truth is this, you may have them today, but they will potentially be gone tomorrow. And do you really want to worship something that has such... Uh, that, that lacks such value and staying power in your life. Look, if the thing that you're worshiping can be taken away tomorrow, then I'm just saying to you, it's not worthy of your worship. It's not worthy of your worship. You know, worship does really mean, it, it, it re refers to what we have set as highest value in our life. And what we respect, what we honor, what we want to emulate, and this is why the psalmist says that those who worship false idols will ultimately become just like them. And I think this is why John talks about these four particular sins, murder, uh, sorceries, sexual immorality, and thefts, right? So obviously, murders is self-explanatory. There will be an absolute lack of human value and dignity. And don't tell me that you don't see you know, the, the early stages of that today. There will be an absolute lack of human value and dignity. Human life will ultimately mean nothing. It will have no value because this particular culture will have drifted so far from Genesis chapter 1 where God himself says that he has made us in his image. Look, if you take that out of a culture, if you take that principle out of culture, where does our value come from? Well, it can only be conveyed by humans. And well, which, which opinion do you take? Which, which value set are you going to say is the best value set for a culture? It becomes arbitrary, right? It becomes relative based on the cultural morals of the day. And this culture will have drifted so far from God that there will be no idea that humanity is made in the image of God. And the fruit of that is unrestrained hatred, it's, it's prejudice and bigotry, uh, it is exploitation of people for one's own personal satisfaction, and then the highest extent of that is murder. It's taking somebody's life for your own selfish purposes. He goes on to say sorceries. Now, I know I, I say that word and some of you are thinking Lord of the Rings or whatever, Harry Potter or something like that. The Greek word here is pharmakia. It's where we get our English word pharmacy from. 
and it's culturally tied to um, these particular peoples using drugs in their religious worship. So they would take illicit drugs and they would use them to have some sort of spiritual experience. Uh, and, and listen, that is absolutely strictly forbidden by the word of God. There is no way, there is no way that you can from scripture somehow justify taking recreational drugs uh, and especially tying it to some legitimized spiritual experience. And you might be thinking, well, that's absurd, Pastor. What fool would ever do that? I have had people over the years come to me, a number of them, and say, man, Pastor, I get so much more out of the word after I smoke a joint. And I'm like, dude, that is not God. That is not the hand of God. Now, I'm not saying, you know, Brandon's got his story that God can be gracious in all of that. He absolutely can. But just because God is gracious in all that does not mean that he condones what you're doing. There is no way to legitimize drug use from the scripture. He goes on to say sexual immorality. This word uh, is porneia. It's singular, not plural. And so, you know, John is simply saying all sexual experience outside of the prescription of scripture. All right? God made sex, sex is good if it's experienced within the prescription of the word of God. And so what is the prescription? Well, it is to be experienced between uh, one man and one woman who are uh, covenanted together in holy matrimony. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying tonight? Any sexual experience outside of that would be considered porneia or sexual immorality. That would be a sin that would need to be repented of. And then the final thing here is thefts. So absolutely disregarding other people's goods and coveting after them, being envious and stealing them so they can be your own. He just names four here. This is not a comprehensive list, but during the Great Tribulation, uh, these evidently will be sins that will be you know, committed probably on a wide scale. So, like, what do we get out of all of that? Um, I think it's just a, a solid reminder tonight that there is only one that is worthy of our worship, and that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, we can learn from the hard-heartedness of other people. God, search our hearts. Have we set uh, in a lateral sense or even subjugated you in our hearts to the worship of something else? God, search our hearts. Show us what that thing is. Show us what thing we've elevated above you. Or God, even maybe we wouldn't say it is at the same level as our worship of you, but if we really did sincerely evaluate our life, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, um, the way we interact with others, it would be evident just from the outside looking in that these things really do have preeminence and priority in our lives even over you. God, keep our hearts in a place where we are sensitive and tender to your Holy Spirit. God, recognizing that even in our own hearts we can be self-deceived, which is why we need your word to search us on a daily basis so that we can, we can see through your spirit if there's any wicked way within us. In Jesus' name. Amen.